0: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
2: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your
1: podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, studies reveal the coronavirus pandemic is leading to higher than usual stress and anxiety levels for a specific group, college students.
3: A lot of students are being very adversely impacted by COVID-19 on a mental level because they feel isolated or they're overwhelmed in terms of having to deal with the pandemic on top of normal schoolwork.
1: We'll hear how Kennesaw State University is expanding mental health services and resources for students. But first, a historic day as the U.S. Congress is set to vote today on the President Biden's administration's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package, known as the American Rescue Plan. Now Georgia's 7th District House Representative Carolyn Bardo voiced her support for the measure yesterday.
3: This week, we will fulfill the promise that we made to the people in Georgia and this country when the House sends the American Rescue Plan to President Biden for his signature. We are voting on a bill that will save lives and livelihoods. Though we've made a lot of progress, including the remarkable development of three COVID vaccines in less than a year, we still have a long way to go. My husband used to wake up every day and ask, Dear Lord, when are they going to have a vaccine? And now he wakes up every day and says, when are we going to get the vaccine? The American Rescue Plan will help us get shots in arms, will increase funding for testing, the development of new therapies, and the expansion of the public health workforce.
1: But not every member of Georgia's congressional delegation is in support of the measure. Longtime Georgia Republican Congressman Buddy Carter took to the House floor today and voiced his opposition. After passing more than $3 trillion worth of relief packages, we find ourselves finally overcoming the COVID-19 virus. We've successfully developed vaccines to combat this virus in record time, and now we see our economy opening up and coming back to full strength. What's more? What's more is that we have yet to spend $1 trillion that has already been enacted, that's already been appropriated, already been voted on. So why do we need to pass another $1.9 trillion? You will find the reasons in the more than 90% of the bill that does not specifically target combating COVID-19. Meanwhile, states, including Georgia, continue to attempt to expedite the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines. As of this week, more Georgians are now eligible to be vaccinated, including educators and adults with disabilities. Now, at this time, the Georgia Department of Public Health reports 950,000 Georgians have received their second dose of a coronavirus vaccine. Now, more than 1,000 new cases were reported just yesterday, and that brings a total to 830,114 confirmed cases since last year. And sadly, 15,647 new, coron- new coron- coronavirus deaths have been reported in total. Finally, former United States President and Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter is speaking out against a Republican-backed bill to eliminate no-excuse absentee voting. In a statement, Carter said the laws would turn back the clock on voting access. The 96-year-old added the proposed election law changes in his home state left him, quote, disheartened, saddened, and angry. Now, this comes after the state Senate approved the measure, as well as other changes to the state's voting system on Monday. And those other proposals include adding an identification requirement on absentee ballots and restricting the number of absentee drop box locations. While none of these bills have yet become law, voting advocates have already threatened to sue if they are signed by the governor. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlantis Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The second largest county in Georgia has a new sheriff. Last November, the election of Kebo Taylor was historic, as he is the first black sheriff of Gwinnett County. And keeping a ca- campaign promise, Sheriff Taylor has ended two programs within the department, and he's ramping up efforts against criminal activities such as human trafficking and gang violence in the county. So joining me now to talk more about all of this is Gwinnett County Sheriff Kebo Taylor. Sheriff, welcome. Great to have you on the program.
0: Thank you, Rose. Thank you for the invitation.
1: How long have you been in law enforcement?
0: Um, very interesting. I was in law enforcement for 26 years before I retired. Mm-hmm. I've been back in law enforcement for two months since I've got reelected <laughs> in January.
1: Oh, let's go back a little bit because you grew up in Lawrenceville, right? Yes, ma'am.
0: I did. I sure did. I am, uh, I'm an original Gwinnettian. Uh, you can't really find many of us around here anymore, um, mm-hmm. uh, Grew up in the 60s, 70s, you know, here in Lawrenceville, uh, attended local high school here, uh, college uh, here, and spent my whole police career working with the uh, Gwinnett County Police Department.
1: Let me ask you this. When you were growing up in the 60s and 70s, how would you assess the relationship with your community and law enforcement?
0: Uh, not good. Really? Um, and I, yeah, and I've said that before. Um, we had one officer around here. It's that guy by the name of Captain Dan Meeks. And Dan was the exception to the rule. Um, he would come around in the neighborhood, uh, get out, interact with the kids, you know, myself, you know, have candy, uh, Mm -hmm. talk with us, have conversations with us. Um, you know, give us a message on how to stay out of trouble, but he basically was the only one. And, you know, one thing that has taken me into my new administration is, is the fact that I do remember how those encounters with law enforcement was as a youth growing up here in uh, Gwinnett County and in Lawrenceville.
1: Well, give our listeners an example. You say it wasn't, wasn't good. Um, you You only saw the police in your neighborhood
0: when things was bad. Mm-hmm. OK, and and I'm talking about when I say bad, I mean bad. All right. Uh, when I actually started policing, I could not believe some of the things that people would actually call the police for. Because in the neighborhood that I grew up in, you never would call the police out for certain things, mm-hmm. you know, such as something got stolen or whatever. But uh, normally it was either acts of violence or, you know, multiple acts of violence when you would actually see the police come through, you know, a robbery or something such as that. And like I said, it was never a positive encounter. Um, you know, everybody was I was just very negative, mm-hmm. in my opinion.
1: Mm-hmm. Sheriff, did you ever have an encounter with law enforcement that maybe left you a little shaken or you felt was unfair or of that nature?
0: I can't say that I personally had those encounters other than watching um, how others was treated, okay? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times, man, uh, you know, when they would come over, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be directed to me, but you could see that it would be directed toward other people, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the neighborhood. I have to say the majority, two of the encounters that I had with police, um, I came out. I mean, it was it was not the way that I would have treated anybody, mm-hmm. but I can say that I wasn't locked up. OK, or. You know, I didn't get locked up or I didn't get, you know, receive the ticket that I probably could have received. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was more so because of my attitude that I did.
1: What was your what was the reason then back in 1983 when you joined the Gwinnett County Police Department?
0: I would love to sit here and tell you that I had all of these lifelong ambitions about being a police officer. Mm -hmm. Uh, They even found a a picture of me when I was a small kid with a police uniform on. But the truth of the matter is, is that I had just flunked out of college at the time and I needed a job. Mm -hmm. And just by chance happening, I ran into a guy that was a Gwinnett County police officer. And he told me about some opportunities that were, that were available. And I felt like that that would have been a good, you know, temporary opportunity for me to do some things, get back on my feet, Mm -hmm. figure out how to get back in school, how to fund my way back in school. And uh, 26 years later, I wind up retiring.
1: You never knew, huh? You never knew that day when someone said, hey, why don't you try the police department? Let me ask you this. Your approach then as an officer, let's go back to that rookie year, maybe. Your approach then and then as you got a little older, how did it change to policing and how you would interact with certain folks in the community?
0: Sure. Um, As a rookie and when I say rookie, I say the first three to four years, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's no such thing as a one year rookie. You know, I did a lot of a lot of assimilating. Okay, Um, this is the system. Um, this is what I'm being taught. Well, this must be what is right. This is what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. But, excuse me, but I also knew too that there was a part of me that was like, you know, I questioned some of the things that we, we did and how we did it. And so for maybe about the first five to six years, it was somewhat of a struggle you know, to try to maintain your your identity as to who you are Mm -hmm. and being able to actually separate the fact that, you know, I am a black male in in the deep south and I'm also a police officer. So the conflict comes, which is not really a conflict, but it is for some. Which one are you? Are you a black male or are you a black police officer? Mm -hmm. And which one do you lean more heavily toward? you know, when you're going through those battles and those conflicts. But as I, you know, went along in my career, you know, and started to make rank and uh, was able to have somewhat of a voice, you know, I was able to speak out on a lot of things that I felt like wasn't right. But I have to admit that the, the, the assimilation was still there, you know, because I didn't know anything else. I started policing when I was 23 years old. Mm. so you know my whole adult life was spent assimilating into a system and I'm sorry no go ahead finish yeah and it, and it wasn't until I got out of policing and got away from policing and I realized wait a minute there's a whole nother different world out here and maybe this is not the best way to do things so that time I spent reshaping remodeling you know re rebranding Kibo Taylor to what to the Kibo Taylor that you see now. Kebo Taylor that retired as a major from the Gwinnett County Police Department is totally different than who you see and what you see now today.
1: How different so, is he?
0: Oh, very different. Uh, this, when I was actually coming along, the system was the system and I was so rigid in the system. Now, you know, I see that there is other ways of handling things especially in the law enforcement community that doesn't necessarily call for law enforcement. How we can actually use I can use this agency in a better way. Okay? How we can come back out and reconnect and try to rebuild trust out here in the communities where, you know, that there's a lot of distrust, especially in the black and brown communities. So, you know, like I said, my experience was a very negative experience, Mm -hmm. but you still have people today here in 2020, 2021 that are still having those same negative experiences with law enforcement. So, you know, it's now up to me to be rebranded and make sure that those, uh, those, those, those situations are different. Let me just say this and then I'll I'll let you get on to your next question. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to just dominate, but no, you're good. This
1: is what this is for. (laughs) Have your say,
0: you know, I often talk about now, I felt like um, when I was policing and I became a major, I was the first and only black major in the Gwinnett County Police Department at that time, at mm-hmm. the time when I retired, okay? Now, there's something to be said about being the first and there's something to be said about being the only because you're the only voice at the tape, okay? And so what you have to realize or what I came to realize is did I really have a voice at the table? Was I really being heard? Even though if I said anything, how strong was my voice? So when I came back in, you know, and I made the decision to run for sheriff, I'm like, I'm not going to be the voice at the table. I'm going to be the table. But when I invite other voices to the table, I'm going to listen to those voices. And we're going to make sure that those voices are included in what we do. So when we go out here and we talk about some of the things that we're putting forth today in the Gwinnett County Sheriff's Office, these are not all just Kibo Taylor's ideas, Mm -hmm. okay? Uh, My staff, especially my executive command staff, man, I have black males on there. I have black females on there. I have a Hispanic male on there. I have white males on there. Um, I have someone from the LBGTQ community that is – uh, one of my direct i'm at the section managers over here uh over my p s u unit here uh-huh. and so you know i i look for that diversity okay and I appreciate that diversity, but when you get it, you gotta be willing to listen to it and you know and allow these people to do their jobs
1: mm. you campaigned on that you also campaigned that if elected, you were going to end the two eighty seven g program um you are not you aren't the only uh, sheriff to do that. I had a conversation not too long ago with another sheriff about that. Why was that so important for you to want to discontinue that program?
0: Well, one thing that I said about the 287G program is is that on day one, uh, one of the first things that I was going to do was end that program. Mm-hmm. And I held true to that. On the first day in office, you know, I, I cut an order that day in, in our participation in the 287G program. You know, if I could just sum it up and not be long-winded on it, the 287G program is a very discriminatory program. And what I saw when I started to look into that program and really get to understand what that program was, it reminded me so much of the discriminatory practices that Black people went through Mm -hmm. back in the 80s, you know, late 70s, 80s. And even into the 90s, before they actually started to, you know, take a look and, and, and understand that blacks was actually being racially profiled out here on traffic stops and how we were being disproportionately, you know, sentenced into the criminal justice system. So I see the same thing with this 287G program. It may not be affecting black people in that way, mm-hmm. but it definitely affects the Hispanic community and other communities of people of color here that are here, that are undocumented here in the in the United States.
1: That U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement program that a lot of counties did partner with, as far as Gwinnett County, was there a contract where you all, I'm assuming you all were able to get out of it? Did you hear any feedback from ICE asking to reconsider, or how cooperative were they in saying, okay, we'll just end this this partnership?
0: Well, we had some conversations, and I'll just leave it at that. Oh, <laughs> we did have conversations um you know and I mean and and I applaud anybody for doing the job you know if that is their job that's their mandate then you know by all means you know do your job all right um but you know sometimes we have to come to the to the agreement to agree to disagree okay and as as they say you know you know, I wish you well in your business, as long as your business doesn't affect my business. So, you know, that was what we had to leave it at is, is that, you know, whatever it was that they need to do on their mandates, you know, I wish them the best, you know, and I pray for their safety, just like anybody else out here in law enforcement that Mm -hmm. I would pray for, um, you know, that, that those men and women go home safely to their families. But, you know, it's just could not be a situation where we continue to interact under those types of agreements.
1: If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Gwinnett County Sheriff Kibo Taylor. We're talking about some changes that he, he's already made since he's been in office. Let's talk about then this other, this rapid response team. Now there have been dozens of lawsuits, some settlements. What was the original through your lens? What was the rapid response team supposed to be about?
0: Well, when you look at, you know, when you bring in any type of a specialized unit or su- something such as that, you know, you have to sit down and be very purpose gri- driven and uh, you have to be mission focused on what it is that you're expecting out of a unit such as that. OK, what I saw out of the rapid response team was was that it was totally mismanaged. All right. Uh, supervision, the management, you know, they were totally off focus as to what they were doing. And, you know, always you can see how, you know, units like that, they are necessary. You know, you have situations inside of a facility such as this to where you have to use certain teams to come in to handle situations like that. But I, I feel like that they completely lost uh, the mission and the mandate as to what they're doing, mm-hmm. as far as with no de escalation of force and the excessive use of force in, in those incidences that they were called in there to, uh, to come in to handle. So, um, you know, when we talk about disbanding the rapid response team, you know, it's one thing to cut an order and say, we're not going to have the rapid response team anymore. Okay. Again, that's something I can do within a day, but it's taken a lot longer to come in to actually change that culture, you know, and get people up to speed, trained up on the fact that we're not doing that anymore. Okay. When we go in on a situation now, We're going to utilize other techniques first before we have to use anything that, you know, even resembles force.
1: But this team, I just want to be clear for our listeners, Sheriff, forgive me. This rapid response team, they were responsible for handling, I guess, for lack of better words, difficult inmates. If there was an issue with an inmate, maybe not adhering to an order. or I want our listeners to clearly understand what they were supposed to be doing.
0: You're correct. Okay. Those would be the type of incidences that they will respond to. But in my opinion, you know, a team like that would be more betterized. Let's just say if you had, you know, uh, an uprising in one of the, the areas of your, your facility. Sure. Okay. Specialized teams such as that, you know, that is, in my opinion, what those teams are more useful for when you have an individual. Okay, Uh, what we're teaching now and our what we're at with it now is, is that before you go in and you utilize force, we want to start utilizing some de-escalation techniques first, Mm -hmm. you know, and really we have to understand that, you know, the majority of the times when you're having those incidents inside of a facility like that, there has to be some sort of mental illness that is associated with Mm -hmm. it. And some of the uh, a couple of the cases that they settled out here uh, before I got in office they were actually involving people who were going through uh, uh, mental disability crises at that time.
1: Mm -hmm. Well Sheriff Taylor you've had a lot that you wanted to implement that you wanted to make sure you bring in the focus also, with and now let's back up, not to mention you were elected during the <laughs> pandemic. So let's start with that for our listeners. Uh, is everyone safe? You know, I know that's not in the sheriff handbook, you know, but is <laughs> <laughs> have you all been able to make sure that your officers are safe and their staff? And then also with your inmates or folks being tested regularly?
0: Well, we've had our challenges, mm-hmm. uh, especially with staff. We've had staff in and out of uh, quarantine. Uh, We've had a number of staff members, including myself, who actually had COVID, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm glad of the fact that we were able to actually get started with uh, getting our staff vaccinated with the uh, vaccines that Mm -hmm. they have out there now, all right? Um, We've had COVID inside of the jails. Those numbers have fluctuated up and down. And uh, let me knock on wood, if you believe in superstitions, you know, I got a report as of yesterday that we had no cases of COVID inside of our uh, detention facility. So uh, don't want to jinx myself out on that, but, you know, I do attribute it to, you know, not necessarily superstition, but just the job that they're doing, the staff is doing back there. And when we do find someone that comes in with a that is identified as a potential person with covert how they're isolating them before they're putting them out there in the general population
1: now have you received the vaccine sheriff
0: yes ma'am i have both of them
1: okay and you're encouraging your officers or is it a mandate for officers and staff what's the policy there for the sheriff's department
0: it's not a mandate but i highly encourage um mm-hmm. uh, people that get the vaccine, you know, and I know that there's a tremendous amount of distrust out there, especially in the uh, black community and the older blacks, you know, I've dealt with this with some of my elderly relatives, mm-hmm. you know, some I've been able to convince to get the vaccine, some I've not been able to uh, convince to get the vaccine, but, you know, um, for me, I knew that, you know, for me and my immediate family, I know knew that that is the right thing for us to do is to get the vaccine.
1: Sheriff, I'm going to go back to my days as a reporter in the WAB newsroom, and I covered uh, child child sex trafficking and exploitation. I covered that for so many years. I know this is an initiative that you are launching along with the anti-gang unit. Let's start with the trafficking situation. Gwinnett County was, back in the day when I was covering this, Gwinnett County was one of those counties that had a high percentage of child exploitation Uh, that was taking place what do you hope to do with this unit now
0: if if i can do one thing with this unit okay that is to bring the spotlight out on the need for more resources toward it okay Mm -hmm. if there's one thing that we can do is is to show this is something that is is growing is growing in our county um so many times we'll see issues that will start to pop up, whether it's an opiate addiction or a crack addiction or whatever. And you know, we we long as it's not in our community, it's okay. It's over there for somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. But what we have to realize is is that this is everybody's problem. You know, anybody out here could fall victim to these situations out here. Okay. And so um, not only are we you know, strengthening our units up and taking uh, the initiatives to address this, we're also looking to provide, you know, um, care and counseling, excuse me, not counseling, but care and services for our victims here Mm -hmm. also. Uh, I get mixed up because I start thinking about the counseling issues of uh, the no, mental health.
1: No, disability. and and listen, all the years I've covered this, it's everyone has always said it takes a holistic approach to combating uh, that. And it's still an issue. And also with your anti-gang unit. Uh, some of the challenges I've heard before in the past is that you have all these subsets of, of gangs and you have also the profiling of what constitutes a gang and up in Gwinnett County, what are the What are the challenges you all are facing?
0: Well, here, again, it's resources. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go back and you look at what we had, and let me just talk about the sheriff's office mm-hmm. here, okay? Um, when he had, when the, my predecessor had the 287G program going, he had over 13 people that was dedicated and 13 people plus supervision that was dedicated to the 287G program. Because the miscommunication and the misinformation that was being put out is this is what keeps Gwinnett County safe. When on the flip side, he had one person that was actually uh, assigned to the Gwinnett County Gang Task Force. Mm-hmm. But when you go back and you look and if you want to talk about safety, even without numbers, it's pretty simple. When over half of the gang violence deaths, homicides that you saw in Gwinnett County in 2020 OK, over half of them had some sort of gang affiliation with it or was the direct result of a gang member. Then that tells you, you know, your program, you're not putting the resources toward what is actually keeping Gwinnett County safe. Okay. So, you know, initially, you know, right off the river, I'm like, OK, I see where there's a need there for the homicides. So why not go ahead and start a gang's initiatives and let's beef up? put more, dedicate more resources toward that particular issue.
1: Does it also include uh, prevention in terms of recruitment of young folks and recruitment within the schools of folks to join the gangs?
0: Yes, it does. Um, When you go back and look, um, we've created a, a, a section here, and it's my community outreach section. Okay, And one of the things that they're tasked with is is going into these communities and working with our youth, interacting with our youth. Uh, We've had a couple of, I I don't know how many school visits that we've had so Mm -hmm. far over the past couple of months, but we're looking to increase that as we go along. But what we're doing is, is that, you know, you, you have to go back in. If you want to talk about gangs, gangs, violence, you got to go back in and you have to initially address why would a person join a gang? Mm -hmm. Okay. What is it about their environment that makes them feel like it is necessary to join a gang? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we have to go into those communities and address those, 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 those uh, concerns that they have. You know, when I was working in narcotics, I was doing a, A presentation for some people and they were asking me, you know, well, why are these kids going out here, you know, selling crack and I'm like, You have to go back in and you have to look at the neighborhood. You have Mm -hmm. to spend some time in the neighborhood. So if you got a kid out there and he has nothing, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden if he can go out there and stand on a street corner. You know, and even just be a lookout, make two, three hundred dollars and buy some shoes. And I'm not talking about your best shoes. I'm just talking about a pair of shoes so that this kid can have the basic necessities to go to school.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm like, you know, if we don't address these social economical issues in these neighborhoods, then, you know, all you're doing is throwing resources toward locking up more people and you can't lock up the situation.
1: Mm -hmm. Sheriff, as we wrap up a moment ago, you talked about how you have changed in terms of your law enforcement career path. Now you're in a leadership role and now you've talked about making sure you you can increase or improve policing in the community. But you also want to make sure your officers are safe and that they feel like they're supported. So how what is your approach to balancing all of this?
0: It's, it's real simple. When I first took this office, I was told that nobody would want to work for me. Um, really? If those were, oh, yeah. You know, it's like nobody's going to want to work for you. And, and you know, if that, those are your stances on things. Here's what I say, okay? We have to put mechanisms in place to address people, officers, deputies who should not be in law enforcement, okay? And once you're, you know, you have the the the, the foresight, the want to, the will to do that, then you throw as much support as possible at the ones that are here that come in here every day and all they want to do is come in, do their job, you know, make a living, take care of their families and, you know, and, 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 and they're here. This is one of the best agencies in the world, okay? And I said it, the world, all right? I got some great people here. They come in here, they put it out there every day. So it's my job to make sure that I'm supporting these people, however, whatever that looks like.
1: All right. Gwinnett County Sheriff Kibo Taylor. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. We're going to bring you on thank back. You, Glad that everyone is safe and that you have recovered or are recovering from COVID-19 and anybody else within the department. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.
3: Jasmine Lewis, I live in Midtown Atlanta. I love this community. I've been here for about 10 going on 11 years. Everyone here is really nice. Affordability is definitely a concern here. When we got here in 2009, a one bedroom would be like which at that point was feasible. Now that same one bedroom in that same building is about $1,600 and no renovations have been made. So I'm really looking forward to maybe some community aspects coming back into this neighborhood, most definitely. Rebecca Bagley, and my husband is William Bagley. We have access to so many different restaurants. We're actually hoping to get a house, but we are not looking forward to the fact-
0: Not being in Midtown. Yes.
3: It's just not affordable. I like how what
0: do you like about the neighborhood turned into, I can't afford the neighborhood.
3: Yes, yes. I still like am dreading leaving the city. My name is Amy Stone, and I would love to see the light rail system get hooked up to Emory. I think that would relieve a lot of traffic congestion. And if Atlanta could get more connected through alternative transportations other than cars, it would become the city that it could be. I'm Matthew Faulkner, and I live in Midtown. Definitely seen a lot more
1: uptick in crime, like kind of just walking around. Things just feel a little different than they beginning. I think with the support of police and we treat each other with better respect that we're gonna see a whole better community overall. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlantis Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Back in September of last year, I spoke with a group of college journalists for a conversation about what it was like reporting on the pandemic while they were in school. And I asked this question. Let me ask you all this, because not only as students, but as student journalists, are there any story angles that perhaps we're missing right now as it relates to the college experience and what college students are dealing with? If so, tell me what it is.
0: I feel like the mental health aspect of things, this is such a new experience for everyone. Everything we're doing is a first time, whether it's being full virtual, being on campus with certain restrictions. So I feel like although we do talk about in like the mainstream media, what's going on, our students going back on campus, I guess just like the process into school, I don't think the story of what the students are thinking or what happens when you get back on campus or how's this virtual experience going on? I don't feel like that conversation's being had enough about, okay, wait. But what do we think about this in terms of our mental
3: space? I think one major thing that I've noticed is student mental health, both on and off campus. You've got freshmen on campus who are having a severely diminished experience. They're not getting to go to in-person events. Things as simple as the dining hall or the gym are closed or have limited access. And so a lot of students are being very adversely impacted by COVID-19 on a mental level because they feel isolated or they're overwhelmed in terms of having to deal with the pandemic on top of normal schoolwork. And then you've got universities all over the country sort of acting like everything is normal. Um, A lot of universities didn't adjust tuition. Uh, They didn't uh, account for certain things such as like students not being able to work jobs because they can't physically go into those spaces. And so I think students are overall a lot more stressed than they would be. So I think that's definitely something that larger news media could be touching on is the adverse impacts on students' mental health as a result of this virus.
1: Well, in response to all of this, many colleges and institutions of higher learning are working to expand mental health resources for students. And joining me now to talk more about this is Teresa Johnston. She's the Assistant Vice President for Student Affairs at Kennesaw State University, and she oversees a new initiative called Wellbeing at KSU. Thank you so much, Ms. Johnston, for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.
1: Your overall thoughts on what you just heard from those students, and that was just last September. I know
2: my overall thoughts are the impact is staggering of COVID-19 certainly on our population, our student population and the challenge for students, right? To go having been in a um, physical environment and then switching over very rapidly, right? To a Mm -hmm. virtual uh, ethos. And so um, there has been some fallout for sure uh, to the extent that students had to adjust certainly to the technology alone. Uh, Faculty and staff had to deal with technology uh, as well. And then how do we connect students again in a virtual environment? Because Mm -hmm. as much as we know that our student population, our young adults, and even our younger generations are connected to technology, it's a very different experience to be in a box Mm -hmm. and uh, to talk online versus, you know, being in the classroom with each other. So, you know, we have seen, excuse me, we have seen some increase in anxiety. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think the isolation is a big part of it. And helping students stay connected, even in the virtual environment, uh, leaving their video screens on, right? Leaving, leaving the video on, they're mm. disconnecting by just turning off and just listening. And hopefully they're listening. So I do think that there is a very big impact.
1: What were you all or have been hearing at Kennesaw State in regards for students? Did you see an increase in students trying to seek additional resources? What has it been up to you all launching this new initiative?
2: So for us, we have seen an increase in students participating online in workshops and group therapy, which has been Mm. interesting. And an increase um, certainly in telemental health. Uh, We were uh, stepped right into the telemental health field um, as we've had to expand those services for students and be available. Uh, So the students found their way, uh, much advertising and outreach to students, but they did find their way into uh, the virtual environment for telemental health as well. And the increase and the participation, interestingly enough, in group is greater than it had been prior. What do you so think? It feel comfortable in the environment differently than potentially those of us who practice in the field. Mm. Um, so very interesting.
1: Why do you think that is? Why do you think there was an increase in for those to participate in the group therapy? I think there's a capability to be
2: in a group and also um, observe uh in the virtual environment, often when you're sitting face-to-face or in a small group, uh, there's less invisibility and maybe a little bit safety. Um, I know that the groups that I have led over my lifetime, uh, we often try and draw students into conversations, you know, in, in a workshop or in a in group therapy. Um, so that may be a little bit of it. It is certainly convenient. It is certainly <laughs> convenient to show up in an environment and, and to get into your onto your computer at the last minute to join something. So I think convenience also has a great deal to do with it.
1: Let's talk about well-being at KSU. How did this uh, evolve? And then for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, what does it entail?
2: Absolutely. So in 2019, the University System of Georgia uh, began to look at uh, uh, putting together a task force uh, looking at mental health across the system. And so we we're a little ahead of the game before COVID struck so that we were very fortunate for that reason. Uh, During that time we evaluated different opportunities to expand and enhance uh, the services on the college campus. Some of our campuses have very limited mental health support services and some of us have more expansive and so uh, the well-being at Kennesaw included adding uh, 24-7 services so that a student can make a phone call uh, to one number during the day and in the evening 24-7 Anywhere in the world, actually, we have international services now, uh, mm-hmm. in which a licensed professional counselor, a mental health counselor um, and provide those service services. Uh, we have expanded services for um, psychiatric as well as um, expanded services for online training and educational programs.
1: So this is much more than just a mental, a 24-7 mental health support line. You have other resources Attached to that, if a st- if you need to refer a student beyond for other services,
2: that's correct. And much like um, in in corporate America and in, in certain certainly uh, in our system, an uh, EAP an employee system benefit, right? So mm-hmm. often we have an expanded service for um, our, our employees. This is similar in that the students can call and get some immediate appointments if we, for example, at Kennesaw can't get them in right away because we're servicing so many students. We have 41,000 students at mm-hmm. our university and we have 18 professional counselors, so licensed. Uh, so yeah, so absolutely those services. The other initiative that we also added was a, a student peer-to-peer service. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been with students to train them for wellness peer mentoring uh what we do know there are a lot of barriers for students showing up for counseling Mm -hmm. many will never come inside a counseling office Mm. and so um, offering this opportunity for students to be mentored by uh, a peer is is one of the services we've expanded
1: now the service is also available in languages other than english
2: so not for our peer mentors but on our campus um We do have, uh, I believe we have Spanish, and I think we have one other language. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's a great question. We did a survey for the university system itself just recently uh, to look at addressing the languages, also looking at um, support services for the visually impaired um, and also for hearing impaired and looking at what sorts of services that we do have across the system for that. Absolutely.
1: And Ms. Johnston, is there a cost for any of these counseling services?
2: At Kennesaw State, uh, there is not a cost for these counseling mm-hmm. services. They're all part of the student uh, tuition. At each university, they're a little bit different uh, through the system, but at, K- at KSU, these services are free for our students.
1: The voice you hear is Teresa Johnston. She's the Assistant Vice President for Student Affairs and oversees the well-being at KSU program. We're talking about how Kennesaw State University is investing in mental health services for their students. And Ms. Johnston, when you when these students are calling or they're seeking services? How often is, we know about stress and anxiety, but are you hearing some other concern? depression, perhaps even suicide? You know, what are you hearing from students?
2: So we do know that uh, national research shows one in four college students um, are um, at risk uh, for suicide. Um, mm-hmm. And so the uh, whether they've attempted or thinking about it. Um, so that is a great concern, certainly a- across the whole whole nation. Um, at Kennesaw, in particular, we've seen an increase in stress, anxiety, academic, financial related. Mm-hmm. And I think the financial related piece, obviously we heard that in, in some of those conversations prior, um, that that's a big piece during COVID, um, certainly at this time. And uh, depression, I think, is is mm-hmm. the other, you know, of hopelessness or sadness and mm-hmm. sense of purpose.
1: Now, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp did announce plans to distribute $11.5 million in emergency education relief fund to support mental health services, particularly for those students within the university system of Georgia. Uh, is this where you're all going to get your primary funding source from for programs like this? And I imagine to ask you, is $11.5 million enough considering all the schools? But, you know, I guess every little bit helps, huh?
2: Every little bit helps. In fact, as we put together that t- task force I mentioned, we had a, a plethora of ideas for what to do, but we had no funding. And mm-hmm. then that funding came on the heels of, of that workforce um, analysis and in, in looking at vendors and how do we do this? So that was fortuitous. Um, the expansion for what we were calling Christie Campus Health mm-hmm. Organization, they're the ones that are providing that 24 um, seven clinical support and then the Jed Campus Initiative, which is an initiative that uh, takes a look at the strategic uh, a strategic picture at each individual college and university to understand where we can grow our services, how we can collaborate better. So those two in particular services were um, provided for through this $11 million.
1: And I imagine if you all are wanting to collect data, and obviously you want to respect people's privacy, but are you able to collect any type of Demographic data that you might need, for example, are we seeing more men or women or trans students or, LGB- or students identifying the LGBTQI space um, down to ethnicity and race and international? Are you all able to collect any of that data?
2: So the data we do we do collect data within our counseling um, center. Uh, We also collect data through um, our other initiatives. So health and well-being is the the larger discussion uh, when we do surveys with our health promotion, um, our sports and rec department, Mm -hmm. the center for young adult addiction and recovery. So we are able to collect. the data and look at the aggregate data as well as whatever services are being, I'm going to say outsourced to the Christie campus health. For example, we receive a monthly um, report on what activities they're reaching out for, as well as um, what services they're tapping into. So we do have that capacity.
1: And is there anything that you all would like to be able to offer or, you know, you need to offer but you can't right now, either due to funding or because right now it's, just, it's not the time because you don't have as many students on campus.
2: Well, I, I think right now we're pretty excited about the funding we received. So mm-hmm. Kennesaw situated quite well with our with our counseling. I think the area that we really wanna look into, um, I'll step back, we also have put together a committee of 18 people across the university to um, look at the mental health and well being on the campus. And so the area that we're we're looking at is certainly diversity and inclusion and Mm -hmm. equity. How do we help students who will not walk into a counseling center, right? Mm -hmm. So each come from different cultures, from different places, from different privilege. And the opportunity to suddenly be on a college campus as a first-year student uh, and be very overwhelmed because I'm first generation Mm -hmm. is, is a real area for growth for us. Um, we have an opportunity coming up and it's just beginning to work with the president, Dr. Witten, pre, uh, President's Task Force on Race. And I, we're tying in our mental health initiative into that task force to make sure that we're addressing all of our students across the population. So I think that's that's one of our challenges going forward.
1: And you and I both know stigma sometimes can be just that in itself is a main barrier that people will not seek. Mental health services because of all the stereotypes associated with that. Now, will this continue after graduation as well? Will this these services be available in the summer?
2: They will. They're twenty four seven. Also, our division of student affairs will continue uh, and sustain the programs. One of the goals, um, or one of the initiatives that also came out of this, we were able to apply for some funding to the university system for what we called mini grants. Mm-hmm those mini grants um, are providing training and education for our faculty and staff and students in uh, mental health. And so mm-hmm. what we know is a counseling center alone is not responsible for the mental health of the whole university. Mm-hmm. Uh, we help faculty and staff not become overwhelmed or afraid to answer questions for folks. And so that's a big part of what we're doing um, along with that peer, uh, peer mentors. And so the division of student affairs will pick up uh, the initiative through the um, end of the grant period, which is mm-hmm. the end of September, and we will continue to do it year-round.
1: And although you are primarily working with the students, I want to make sure our listeners are aware of, you know, what resources are available for faculty, for staff, for support staff of the university. I imagine there's something in place for them as well.
2: Absolutely. Our human resources department has extensive um, support services, but we do have also as employees of the state, we have EAP programs where we can reach out for mental health and support as well. And, and Rose, I wanted to address the stigma. I think that is a, a very big issue as as uh, I actually was on your show several years ago for the Center for Young Adults Addiction and Recovery. Mm-hmm. And we- a stigma associated with addiction, right? And and dependence on substances. So that is one of our goals and initiative is to reduce the stigma by uh, helping students uh, reach out to other students in this wellness uh, mentor program to say, just come on in and talk about it. You know, no Mm -hmm. judgment. No judgment. That is a big part of what our initiative is as well.
1: No judgments, indeed. Teresa Johnston is the Assistant Vice President for Student Affairs and oversees the Wellbeing at KSU program. Ms. Johnston, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you all are doing to provide services for the students at KSU.
2: Thank you, Rose. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and your work as well. Thank you.
1: appreciate that. Good to see you. And before we close out today's show, a reminder about tomorrow's program. We're going to talk about what to do with Greenbrier Mall. And we actually have a question out there in Twitter land, but you can email me. What do you think should happen to Greenbrier Mall? How should it be redeveloped or reimagined? Rose at WABE.org. That's it for today's show, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at WABE.org slash look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m., as well as in our podcast, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And, Kevin, I just want you to know, our engineer, somebody emailed me, wanted to know if you still were riding a bike because I hadn't mentioned it. Yes, Kevin still rides a bike, but, you know, Kevin may not want all y'all to be up in his business, but he rides a bike. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.